quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is CNN Breaking News. You're watching CNN. I'm Eleni Jarkas in Dubai, and we begin with the latest on the tragedy in Texas. The police response and the timeline of Tuesday's mass shooting are under intense scrutiny. Authorities now say the 18-year-old suspected gunman was not confronted by a school resource officer before he entered the building, contradicting original police accounts. Questions are also growing about why officers were not able to stop him sooner. The shooter was inside the school for about an hour before he was killed by law enforcement. Frantic parents arriving at the scene say that they were held back by police. Well, meanwhile, the mother of the alleged shooter was interviewed by CNN affiliate Televisa. Listen to what she had to say. I have no words. I have no words to say. I don't know what he was thinking. He had his reasons for doing what he did. And please don't judge him. I only want the innocent children who died to forgive me. What do you tell their families? Forgive me. Forgive my son. I know he had his reasons. What reasons could he have had? To get closer to those children, instead of paying attention to the other bad things, I have no words. I don't know. Building a timeline uh, has been really important over the last couple of days. Shimon Prokopes has more on the investigation and the details emerging. Let's take a look. Growing outrage as more details emerge about the crucial hour a shooter had barricaded himself in a classroom at Robb Elementary School. You go in, and that didn't happen here. I don't want to Monday morning, Monday morning quarterback this thing, but at the end of the day, we have to find out for the future so that this never happens again and what kind of failures happen. And I feel in this situation, standing back was not the thing to do. 19 children and two teachers were killed in Tuesday's massacre. And new video reveals parents frantic outside the school begging law enforcement to enter. I told one of the officers myself if they didn't want to go in there, let me borrow a gun and a vest and I'll go in there myself to handle it up. And they told me no. I mean, they... Like I said, they were, they, they were doing their job, but they could have done it quicker before that man went in the school. Criticism over the police response is mounting. Since Columbine, we've known that law enforcement has known that you don't have a second to waste when you're dealing with an active shooter. Police engage the teachers, get the kids out of here, and you hold that ground. You bang it out with them until 
heavier weapons arrive. Those parents were right. Further, law enforcement is now backpedaling earlier statements made to the public in the hours after the shooting. On Tuesday, the public was told that the shooter engaged with a school resource officer, but that was not the case. He was not confronted by anybody. To clear the record on that. There was no school resource officer at the school when the shooter entered the building. Here's where the timeline of events stands, according to law enforcement. At 11.28 a.m., the gunman crashed his vehicle in a ditch near the school. Onlookers nearby saw the crash and the gunman emerge weapon in hand. Came out with an automatic weapon, shot at least twice, maybe three times at them. And then that's when he spotted me and boy, I, I mean, I was already in motion to run and that's when he, bam, bam. At 11.40 a.m., the gunman seems to have walked into the school through an unlocked door. Inside, the gunman entered a classroom and fired more than 25 times. At 11.44 a.m., law enforcement entered the school. They immediately received fire and took cover. Officers say the shooter was barricaded in a classroom and they were talking to him. They also called for backup. Officials defending the response to the shooting. At that point, they had the suspect contained inside the classroom. If those officers weren't there, if they did not maintain their presence, there is a good chance that gunman could have made it to other classrooms and commit more killings. There is still a crucial hour where details are sparse as to why officers were not able to breach that barricaded classroom and apprehend the gunman. We will be doing updates. We will be doing updates to answer those questions. What is your name? Shimon. I hear you. Because we've been given a lot of bad information, so why don't you clear all of this up now and explain to us how it is that your officers who are in there for an hour, yes, rescuing people, but yet no one was able to get inside that room. Shimon, we will, we will circle back with you. Well, President Biden is expected to visit Uvalde to meet with the victims' families. Understandably, students who survived the ordeal have been left shaken and scarred. An 11-year-old girl telling CNN the gunman said goodnight before killing her teacher. She also said the shooter played music during the massacre. Adrian Bordas spoke to another student who survived the shooting as well. Jaden Perez is better today. Still sad about some of, the, some of my friends that died. And the 10-year-old shooting survivor says talking helps. It was very terrifying because I never thought that was going to happen. Inside a fourth grade classroom, the 10-year-old said he and his classmates hid near the backpacks. This photo of the classroom was taken long before the shooting. Five of us hiding there and then the rest under a table. But I didn't stop one of my friends getting hurt. The shooter shot through the window and hurting my friend and my teacher. Like my teacher got hurt like on right like on what I don't know which side but she got hit like hit on the side. And then and then my friend got like shot through the nose. And they had, and, and they both had to get surgery. Perez said an officer helped him and his classmates escape through a window, but not before the shooter had killed his friends. McKenna, uh, Tess, Annabelle. 
Basically almost some of them. Basically almost all of them. Jaden's pain, not physical, but emotionally paralyzing. No, because after what happened, no. Do you ever want to go back to school? I don't want to know what, because I don't want anything to do with another shooting and me in the school. You scared it might happen again? Mm-hmm. And I know it might happen again, probably. Jaden's mom, Crystal, shared these pictures taken about 90 minutes before the shooting. She's with her son at the school, celebrating Jaden's honor roll achievement. His mom said waiting, not knowing, was tough. What did you tell your mom when you finally saw her? I left my water bottle at school. <laughs> your water bottle. Did you hug her? Mm-hmm. Or she hugged me first and she was like, Ugh! Was she so happy to see you? Yes, and my dad and my grandma. What do your parents mean to you? Uh, a lot, because they brought me into this world. A world where schools are also crime scenes. Did you hear the gunfire? Yes, you never know when everything you lose someone close to you. And now Adrian uh, joins us live from Uvalde. I have to say, listening to the survivors, listening to their experiences and thinking about the harrowing moments um, as this was playing out and also trying to reconcile what the police are telling us right now in terms of building that timeline. Could you give me a sense of how the parents are feeling about the information flow, what the victims are telling you at this point? I'll start with the first question in regards to the parents, and I'll just speak to Jaden's mom. I asked her how she was doing today. I didn't want to say, how are you doing? I was clear to add the word today because it's evident though their feelings change from day to day. And she said she too was doing a bit better. As you can imagine, some of the parents in this community are frustrated. There's almost a feeling of betrayal knowing their children were inside of the school and they were they felt helpless they were unable to get inside to help them and as far as the children some of them are processing their grief in their own way for Jaden he wanted to talk he said it helps him get things off his chest he told me he doesn't remember much about that day but he does remember when the shooting started he also remembers what was happening in that classroom moments before the shooting. They were preparing to work on a class project. It was the end of the school year, so it's spirit week. The kids are excited and having fun. And he said he really didn't want to do that project. They were creating sandals, and he just wasn't into that kind of thing. Then the shots rang out. His teacher raced to the door. He said she locked the door, and she told everyone to be quiet and hide. And this is something that these children are going to carry with them for the rest of their lives. Jaden knows a majority of the 19 year, or excuse me, 19 students who were killed. And if you think about that, at a young age, he's only 10. If his mother allows him to attend, by the time he's an adult, he will likely have attended more funerals than any other type of celebration. 
Yeah, it's a stark reminder of the reality that these victims are facing, but we're very grateful um, for them speaking out and sharing their experiences because it's so important to talk about this right now, um, especially as the investigation gets underway. Uh, Adrian, thank you very much for your reporting. We're going to a short break. We'll be back right after this. Stay with us. Ukraine's military claims it continues to block a Russian advance into Donbass from the north. But Russian forces have made gains in recent days. The British Prime Minister Boris Johnson saying that, quote, at great cost to the Russian military, they are making slow but palpable progress. Ukrainian President Zelensky is accusing Russia of committing genocide in the east. Take a listen. In cities and communities closer to the Russian border, in Donetsk, in Luhansk, they gather everyone they can to fill the place of those killed and wounded in the occupation contingent. All this, including the deportation of our people and the mass killings of civilians, is an obvious policy of genocide pursued by Russia. Our correspondent Nick Payton Walsh uh, traveled uh, to East Ukraine, which has seen heavy fighting near the Russian-occupied city of Izim. Here's his report. Putin would leave little of what he claims to liberate. An artillery duel has been raging for days, torching around the vital Russian-held town of Izum. Up on high, in a position we were asked not to reveal, these Ukrainian troops, dug in and buoyant, have a clear view of the damage below, but also their enemy. So the, the Russians are just a kilometre on the brow of this hill, in that direction. This unit, only here two days, but say they have already destroyed a Russian tank. Yes, they play to the cameras, but it's pretty clear up here their morale is sky high. <laughs> they are exposed, but ready, keen to show off, actually gleeful at, the international menu of weapons they've been sent. Almost a silly amount. These Swedish anti-tank munitions. And of course, a British N-law. <laughs> then... From out of the grass, a German one, which they particularly like. A Polish grenade. No training on them, just practical use, they joke, giving them the widest experience of anti-tank weapons in Europe. Parading also what the Russians left, thermal optics. And a Soviet-era anti-tank weapon, that they wind up like a telephone. Yet still, the Russians persist, even as the prisoners these troops have taken have revealed how young the soldiers they're fighting are.
the village below, the endless shelling is flushing the remaining life out. This woman said telling me her name would make no difference. They really don't know where they'll go or what, if anything, they can come back to. Just that life has no space left here. Nick Payton Walsh, CNN, near Izum, Ukraine. As that grandmother said, to put goodness in people's brains, but will the brain hold up? Wise words. Let's go now straight to Ukraine. Suzanne Malveaux joins me from Lviv. Uh, Suzanne, you know, we've been watching so much playing out this week, and we know that the Russians are making headway in the eastern part of the country. Uh, President Zelensky warning of genocide, uh, Human Rights Watch also echoing that they're, we're, they're seeing the hallmarks of genocide as well. What more do we know? Well, you're right. Uh, not only Human Rights Watch, but different various uh, Western intelligence sources also indicating the same thing here that President Zelensky has been talking about since the beginning of the war, and that is uh, really carrying out acts of genocide, not only the mass killings of civilians, but deportation and also a process that they are calling filtration. Now, this is a, a very specific and systemic process in which uh, the people who are left, uh, who have not been killed, who have not fled, but the people who are stuck in places like Mariupol and others uh, under ro Russian occupation, uh, they round it up. They are separated from their families. Uh, the men are, are stripped and they are interrogated. They are beaten uh, into submission here, essentially a demoralizing, dehumanizing, uh, process to break their spirit uh, physically and emotionally here. Uh, they take their cell phones, uh, they take all of their contact information, they get gather this information of their family and their friends and uh, their pictures, their social media, everything that they have and essentially use it against them uh, to try to determine if there is any kind of sympathies that they have towards uh, the Ukrainian government or the Ukrainian military. Now, if they pass this process of filtration, they get a certificate. At that point, they're able to leave the area. They have permission to leave, perhaps reunite with some family members and, and return later. But some are stuck in these areas because they never pass or get that kind of certificate. But it really is meant uh, to uh, to beat them down, uh, the people who still remain. And this is what Human Rights Watch and some of these other organizations are talking about. This is what President Zelensky is talking about, uh, that these are war crimes, that this is not uh, in accordance with international law. And Elena, you had mentioned as well, there's still a fierce fight that is going on in the eastern part of the country, uh, in the Donbass, uh, in the Donetsk and Luhansk regions. Uh, we know that in Severodonetsk, that is where there is a hotel called the Mir Hotel. There is a battle, a fierce battle that is taking place uh, in that city, around that city, inside of that hotel as Russian forces stormed that hotel earlier today and the Ukrainian military try to uh, regain control of that area. There is street fighting and there 
is essentially a targeting of the civilian population in that key city as the Russians try to advance. Elena. Suzanne Mulvaux, thank you so very much for that update. Right, Ukraine is being forced to defend itself against Russian attacks not only on the battlefield but also in cyberspace. Microsoft says there have been more than 200 separate cyber attacks launched against Ukraine by Russian-linked actors since the start of the conflict. The company calls what is happening in Ukraine a hybrid war and is helping Kyiv repel those attacks. Julia Chatterley spoke to Microsoft President Brad Smith earlier this week at the World Economic Forum in Davos, Switzerland. Take a listen. We all think of the war as beginning on February 24th. That is the day when cruise missiles were fired. But before a cruise missile was launched, the Russians literally sent code into battle the day before on the 23rd. And we saw it light up at Microsoft um, against literally more than 200, 300 targets across Ukraine. Um, you know, the good news is we were already working with the Ukrainian government in multiple ways. And I think in many respects, defensive technology has held up well against cyber attacks. They were going, the Russians, the hackers were going for critical information, data, strategic targets. Talk to me about the role that you played there in trying to help defend the integrity of the systems in Ukraine. I think two things are really interesting to think about. The first is you cannot run a government, you can't run anything today without digital infrastructure, Mm. without data and digital services. So the first thing we did with the government of Ukraine was migrate them entirely to the cloud, out of their own data center and their own servers, and then move that data outside of Ukraine. So it turns out that in a war, you want to almost evacuate data in addition to people, if you will. The second thing is then been to harden defenses. Right. Uh, we have Windows Defender. It, it's almost like a radar system. It identifies where attacks are coming in. And then we can develop code to fight back against malware and send it back down. And I, and I think that's been the great strength of the defensive side of this cyber war so far. So you, you literally have situations where you had strategic infrastructure data targeted in Ukraine, but the data had already gone because you lifted it out and it was in the cloud. Exactly. I mean, when we were meeting with the Ukrainian government here a couple of days ago in Davos, one of the points they made was that one of the first cruise missiles sent from Russia targeted their data center. That's not a surprise. I mean, typically you go after communications infrastructure first, so you get the data at least copied out and so you can keep running. One of the other things that came from this report, too, was it's not just about Ukraine and strategic targets. The danger now is other countries, be they Finland, Sweden, through their decision over future NATO membership, the United States, obviously, the United Kingdom. I know you're in all of these countries. You're talking to these governments. How prepared are they? How concerned are they? And what are they doing today to shore up defences, whether it's through you or themselves? I think everyone is concerned. and Enough? I, yes, I think people are concerned okay. enough. I think people are getting prepared. Um, I think there's two kinds of problems that people have to worry about. One would be some type of intentional cyber attack on a country outside of Ukraine. And the other is unintentional. When you know code malware is launched at, say, one country, but it spreads. That's happened Solar before. Wings. <laughs> yeah. There, well, and then you know, in Ukraine itself in 2017, there was an attack called NotPetya. Now, the Russians have... You actually engineered their attacks, I think, to ensure that they are more likely to stay in Ukraine. But every time we see an attack, 
we engineer a response and we distribute it worldwide so that if it does go beyond Ukraine's borders, people are protected. It brings me back to multiple conversations that you and I have had in the past, and you wrote about it in your book, too, about a, a, the need for a, a digital Geneva Convention. Are we further away today from that than we were when you were writing the book and saying this is what we need? If I think about Russia, I think about the geopolitical tensions with China. We can throw in North Korea if we like as well. Does it work if we exclude those countries simply because we set some red lines and say, look, this is what's acceptable, this is how we will react? or? Does it not work if we're not all in this? I think that we've made some good progress during the past five years, but I think it's frankly a more complicated and challenging world. In general. At, yeah, in every way. Yeah. And, and at the heart of what you know, we talked about that I talked about five years ago was that there was this critical principle that emerged from you know, the great calamity of the 20th century, the death of 50 million civilians during World War II, that said in times of war, governments have not just a moral obligation, but a duty to protect civilians. And what we are saying is, look at all these attacks on civilians in times of peace. We need a digital Geneva Convention to protect people. Now we're in a time of war. And once again, we're seeing civilians not just being killed, but in some cases being targeted mm. with cyber weapons and other weapons. Yeah, and I think this is a time when for us in our generation, our lifetime, yeah, that principle is on trial, and we have to stand up to defend it. All right, you're watching CNN, and we'll have the market open next. Stay with us. Welcome back. U.S. markets are up and running this Friday, the last trading day on Wall Street, before the long Memorial Day weekend. Now, stocks are higher across the board. Take a look at that. The Dow Jones up a quarter of a percent. NASDAQ also recovering one percent. S&P looking good, seven tenths of a percent up. Dow, in fact, is on track to snap an eight-week losing streak. It's the worst run of losses in decades. U.S. stocks finished higher Thursday with techs rallying more than two and a half percent. Strong earnings from retailer Macy's helped boost the market as well. But retail earnings this week have come in quite mixed. Shares of Gap are tumbling in uh, early trading after it reported weak results, as you can see, down over 12%. The numbers suggest that well-off consumers are still spending while others are becoming more cautious as inflation rises. Tom Posetti joins me. He is the chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital Markets. Tom, really good to see you. I mean, I have to say, it has been a complete roller coaster ride in terms of the economic numbers that we've been seeing, the data, um, some of the results as well. You've got so many exogenous factors, geopolitical issues that are completely out of uh, our control and investors trying to figure out what has already been priced in and what to price in at this point. What are the numbers telling you today? Yeah, look, uh, so good to be with you. Thanks for having me. And yeah, look, I, I think the numbers uh, have been pretty consistent, actually, with this idea that, you know, economic activity is, is, is slowing down. Now, look, I don't think that was a particularly heroic call at the beginning of the year. I mean, I think most forecasters expected it would slow down. I think the, the bigger question was the, the, the degree to which it would slow. Um, and I think that's what's catching some people by surprise. I, I do think things are slowing down, um, not, not just more than people expected. I just think it's also happening faster than a lot of people have, ex uh, have expected. And of course, you know, as you um, highlighted, you know, earning season, which, you know, we're still sort of in the thick of it, um, you know, that's, I think, really one of the things that's brought to light this idea that, 
um, you know, some, some segments of the consumer are slowing down and slowing down pretty abruptly. So I, I think the, I think the, the challenges too exist, you know, up and down the income spectrum. Um, there are different challenges up and down the income spectrum. But I think by the, you know, as we roll into the second half of the year, um, I think, you know, H2 will probably look pretty different than, than, than the first half, which is to say, I think it's probably going to be quite a bit slower. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting point. Firstly, it's almost the end of May, so we are heading into the, you know, officially sort yep. of second half of the year. It is pretty incredible to see just how many more risks emerged in the first half that weren't anticipated. When you're saying a slowdown, I guess the word recession is coming up a lot more often. Yep. To what extent is inflation going to be tempered? These are unknown factors, or do you think that we have a grip on what the outlook is going to be? Look, I think I think the bigger question is, will it feel like a recession, right? Because look, at the end of the day, it's the NBER, yeah. right? The 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 all-knowing NBER that that dates recessions and, and says if we're in a recession or not. I think a bigger question is, will it feel that way? Um, and and I think for a lot of people, it probably will. I mean, I, I think about 1994, 95. You know, a lot of people. Um, I don't know how many people remember sort of you know living through that window um, in the U.S. from an economic perspective, but it felt very recessionary. We had job losses. Manufacturing was in recession and housing was in recession, but it actually wasn't an official recession, but it felt that way. Um, and, and, and I think we, we're probably embarking on something like that here now. I do think we'll have job losses. I think we could even have them before the end of the year. There are certain sectors that are um, sort of, they, they seem very sort of primed to have some job losses. Housing is already struggling here. Um, I think CapEx could, um, uh, capital expenditures yeah. uh, could be the next thing to, to, to slow. And as we said uh, at, the, um, at the top, you know, there are obviously a lot of challenges on the consumer side. So, so again, frankly, whether it's actually labeled a recession or not, I, I don't know if that's, you know, yeah. all that important. I think- Yeah, it's the, the definition, the right? I, I have way. to quickly ask you though, in, in, yeah. in terms of the markets, just very quickly, um, there was sure. a lot of cheap money and free money flowing around because of stimulus. That's been pulled back yeah. now. Do you think where we are right now with 20% down on the NASDAQ is more realistic in your mind? You know, I, I'll leave that to the equity prognosticators to, to sort of answer that question. What I would simply say is, I think at, you know, north of 4,000 on the S&P, um, I, I think that we were getting ahead of ourselves in the context of we've pulled forward an enormous amount of earnings. And I think the earnings numbers now are, are a reflection of that. So I, I think we're more right-sized um, than where we were certainly just a couple of months back. Um, but I, I think that there could be more room to run there. All right, Tom Porcelli, thank you so much. Good to see you. Have a great weekend. Thank you. Too. All right, now Europe is racing to end its dependence on Russian energy. One way it's responding is by turning to other suppliers of fossil fuels, including Colombia. But the rush for more oil and gas risks derailing Colombia's own plans for green energy. Stefano Potsebon reports. Deep in the bushlands of northeastern Colombia, something of a gold rush is taking place. Its prospects are not minerals, but energy. Clean power to lead the country's transition towards a sustainable future. The desert, swept by sea breeze every hour of the day, offers optimal condition for wind turbines, and investors are jumping in. This park is made up of 15 towers and should start producing power soon. At least a dozen more are on the way. The target is to increase renewables production a hundredfold. Colombia has invested millions over the last four years to try become a leader in clean energy production in South America. But that was, of course, 
before the price of fossil fuels spiked up due to the war in Ukraine. As a consequence of the conflict in Europe and the energy crunch that has followed, Colombia's coal and oil export revenues are up almost double compared to last year. While phasing out fossil fuels doesn't seem so inevitable anymore, President Ivan Duque also reneged on a campaign pledge by allowing the first exploration license for fracking in March. This weekend, the choice between renewables and fossil fuels will play out at the ballot. Left-wing candidate Gustavo Petro is leading the polls on a decisively anti-drilling campaign. They are three poisons. The ugliest one is coal, taken out of our Caribbean coast. Then it's oil, and the third one is cocaine. His closest rival has other plans. We need to keep looking for new resources, both for oil and gas. The war in Ukraine has already had an impact here. Not far from the turbines lies Cerrejón, the largest open-pit coal mine in South America. Although its owner, Glencore, pledged to wind down production by 2034 as part of its climate commitment, it also requested permission to partially deviate a stream to expand the mine. When Germany announced it was banning imports of coal from Russia, Colombia quickly offered to increase production. Activists who opposed the expansion of the mine believe the Colombian environment will pay the price for Germany's decision. The Germans said they were not going to use coal anymore, lead this clean transition. But now there's a war up there and they want to buy coal here. So where does that leave us? What we may be seeing is the so-called butterfly effect. When a seemingly minor action in one place leads to enormous consequences on the other side of the globe. Stefano Puzzebon, CNN, La Guajira, Colombia. Now, as Russia faces a wave of condemnation over its conduct in Ukraine, officials in Washington suspect China is drawing lessons from Moscow's military failures. Concerns are growing that Beijing may use that knowledge in a future invasion of Taiwan. Ivan Watson has that story for us. Russia and China enjoy a friendship with no limits. This announcement made by the Russian and Chinese presidents when they met on February 4th on the eve of the Beijing Winter Olympics. 20 days later, soon after the end of the Olympics, Moscow invaded Ukraine. Russia's unprovoked war sparking fears China could have similar plans for Taiwan. Beijing claims the self-governing island belongs to China. Asked if he would get involved militarily to defend Taiwan against China, the U.S. president had this explicit warning. Yes. You are. That's a commitment we made. Beijing has long called for peaceful reunification with Taiwan, but it has also never ruled out using force against Taiwan's democratically elected government. And when it comes to military force, China dwarfs Taiwan, boasting the largest navy in the world and the largest air force in the region. But if Russia's deadly adventure in Ukraine taught strategists anything, it's that size doesn't always matter. The country may clearly have a conventional military advantage over an adversary, but that doesn't mean that it would necessarily achieve easy military or political victory. The war in Ukraine highlights another potential challenge for China. To attack Ukraine, Russian troops simply drove across the border from Russia and from neighboring Belarus. 
But to reach Taiwan, Chinese forces would have to cross the Taiwan Strait, more than 100 miles, 180 kilometers of open water. Well, amphibious assaults are the most difficult complex operations in warfare. If the Chinese tried to send an invasion force from the mainland to Taiwan, they would have to contend with salvos of anti-ship missiles. And what we would see is a massacre of shipping probably in the waters around Taiwan. The Russian Navy has suffered major losses from suspected Ukrainian anti-ship missiles. First losing this landing ship in the Russian-occupied port of Berdyansk, and then losing the Moskva, the flagship of the Russian Black Sea Fleet. Analysts say Taiwan has a much larger arsenal of anti-ship missiles at its disposal, and its military has been training for 70 years against the threat of a Chinese invasion. China is learning lessons uh, from uh, Ukraine, both in a positive and also in the negative uh, manner. Early in his Ukraine war, Vladimir Putin publicly put Russia's nuclear weapons on alert, a thinly veiled threat to the West. Probably that the China will uh, bring in the kind of uh, advantage of uh, the, the nuclear threats uh, in the early phase of the scenario uh, that will potentially, uh, I think, to change the calculation of the Washington, D.C. As a warning to the U.S., China's foreign ministry declared this week that no force in the world can stop China from achieving reunification with Taiwan. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. And still to come, VW Group CEO says the company has shown resilience through recent economic challenges. More on his interview from Davos after the break. Welcome back. Supply chain issues hit the auto industry hard during the pandemic. Earlier this week, Volkswagen CEO Herbert Diess spoke with CNN's Julia Chatterley in Davos about managing in challenging economic times, his concerns about the global economy and his thoughts on sanctions on Russia. Take a listen. I think it's challenging, no? And in automotive with complex supply chains, uh, it's probably one of the more complicated uh, areas. And some of the effects which are produced currently, we don't see yet. Now we have really soaring raw material prices mm. uh, and we have inflation. And some of them will only come into place probably in half a year in a year's time. So it is really tough times. But we have managed crises. We have shown resilience. Uh, we have our quarterly results are not too bad. So, um, yes, I'm convinced that we can manage. What, what's more of a concern for me are the long-term tendencies, what we now experience also here in Davos, now that we're talking a lot about new block building, mm. about uh, self-sufficient regions. This is a concern for me because an, an open world is just much, a much better world. It's an important question, a huge question to be asking at this stage. I mean, we have this conversation every year when we get to come here in Davos that actually globalization didn't work for a huge chunk of the world. But that's You're not true. That's not true. No, I think the world improved so much. Now, thinking, thinking back uh, in the 70s, 80s, no, when, when we still had those blocks, you couldn't travel to Moscow or to, to 
Beijing or to many parts of the world. So the world is so much better. So many people came out of poverty. Now so many people have increased their wealth uh, significantly. Yes, there are concerns no? because the, the disparity between the rich and the poor is increasing. Uh, so there are concerns and things to do. But the world, an open world, a free market world, a world where we have uh, Arbeitsteilung means uh, competition, worldwide competition is a much better world. It moves faster. It's, uh, it's, it's friendlier, it has less conflicts than a, a block building. We're there, aren't we? We're sort of at the point of your real concerns and worst fears where we have blocks, where we've got the geopolitical environment, China, the West, escalating, escalated tensions. We've now got Russia. We're looking at the, an axis of perhaps China and, and Russia versus, versus the rest of the world. There's a lot of talk about so, so far uh, China is not joining uh, let's say Russia in any or supporting Russia in any case no, whereas India as a democracy uh, still is, is on against the, the sanctions. So I think it's, we have to accept that this world today is also not unified. We cannot expect so and, and many countries are not uh, behind the sanctions we, we are imposing. We think the sanctions are the right way to go. Mm. But uh, the, the concern is that this leads to a situation where we have a new block building. You know, where we try to get the West against the new East or so, which would be bad. You sort of stepped into the middle of that, though, and been criticised for suggesting that a negotiated solution is the answer to address. And I think the whole world, most of the world, let's be clear, would love a negotiated solution to the to the war in Ukraine. I mean, you've met Putin, you, you've operated in Russia, and let's be clear, you were one of the first to say, "Look, we're suspending operations." Thank you for mentioning. No, yeah, no, it is important. <laughs> yes, balance, uh, fairness is important. Definitely, and I was what very. What did you mean? Because no, you know, and, and I'm, I'm, I'm really ready to repeat that. I, I think no, I was. We were the first to uh, seizing our operations in Russia, shutting it down. We have seven thousand people there. No, yeah. they are all loyal to our brands, and they are uh, Volkswagen people. No? And we sent them home, and we seized our operation. And I always uh, advocated for sanctions, but sanctions should. Uh, we, we should achieve something with sanctions. So far we're going basically from escalation to escalation and we have no change. So I think sanctions, yes, but then how are we going to end this? Because every war has two losers, the winner and the loser. How do you negotiate with Putin? It's difficult. You know, there were some attempts, they, they failed. I think we, we, we need some strong intervention. Some of the great political leaders would make a difference. Xi Jinping, uh, President Biden, uh, or, or the European leader. Uh, so uh, I think we should we should try. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Just because it's not been successful yeah. so far doesn't not mean either or. Trying. No, not no, either I or. Being tough, but talking. Right, and still to come 36 years later and the need for speed is still real at the box office. The much-anticipated sequel to Top Gun flies into theatres today. We have the details next. Welcome back. Tom Cruise is flying high at the box office once again. What kind of mission is this? Everyone here is the best there is. Who's going to teach us? They will start with what you only think you know. Nice. Top Gun Maverick opens in theaters today, kicking off 
Memorial Day weekend with aerial stunts made for the big screen. Chloe Milas joins me now. Chloe, firstly, good to see you. And thank you for breaking in um, with all this bad news we've had. It's good to, to discuss something uh, a little lighter. Um, what are we expecting over this weekend? Wow. Well, let me tell you, this is an escapism type of weekend. And Tom Cruise, yeah. he was adamant about postponing the premiere of this movie, the launch in theaters, until we were in somewhat of a post-pandemic world because he has been very vocal against streaming. So that's why you're seeing so many headlines saying, is Tom Cruise the last movie star? And what they mean by that is that Perhaps this movie, as silly as it may sound, it may quite honestly save the box office. Now, I'm actually going to be seeing the movie tonight, but from some of my colleagues, I know that they are they are expecting massive numbers here in the United States and then eventually all over the world. One of the things that's really interesting, though, is that Tom Cruise, he does his own stunts. You have the seventh Mission Impossible movie coming out later this summer that he stars in. He famously does the stunts in those movies for that franchise. But he does it here in Top Gun. And from what I'm hearing, it's the nostalgia. Also, does Tom Cruise age? He's approaching 60, and it looks like he's been, like, hiding out in ice bath for all of these years. You have Val Kilmer, Jennifer Connelly, Miles Teller, and you are going to see some aerial stunts. You're going to feel patriotic. And they're saying that it's just one of those movies where you're high-fiving the person next to you, and people are cheering, and you're walking out of that that theater with so much, so much pride and patriotism. Now, recently, somebody asked Tom Cruise at the Cannes Film Festival about why does he do his own stunts and puts himself into these dangerous situations. And I just want to tell you what his response was. It was, would you ask Gene Kelly why he does his own dancing? And that, I think, is a really great point here. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's going to be an escapism, uh, much needed, I think, for so many people. Bob Cookson in my ear, who's my producer, is going to watch the movie this weekend as well. You guys better enjoy it. Have a great weekend. Chloe Melas, thank you so much. And that's it for the show. Take care. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max. A new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking. Call me country. Beyonce and Nashville's renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash call me country. Max subscription required.